The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Come on, you've been locked up in here with these numbers all day long, haven't you heard? Somewhere out there is a happy hour with our name on it. I'm not done yet. You go ahead. We always go for a drink on Friday. No, we don't, and it's Monday. It is? You really like doing this, don't you? No, I don't, but somebody has to do no, it. No, 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 you do. I can tell. Gives you a feeling of power. And why not? Numbers make the cash flow. Cash makes the wheels turn. The smoke stack. Thighs part. Addison, my God. Isn't that redundant? Do you know what this means? We made money. The first money we've made. Money we've made. That sounds so much nicer than money we've spent or money we've lost. Sure does. Well, you are so beautiful when you get fiscal. Help me think. We've got to do something with this money. Reinvest it in the agency. Make a capital improvement to increase our productivity. I've got it. Matching crocodile briefcases. Briefcase I? wonder if it's going to be hard to find matching crocodiles. Maybe an advertising campaign. Or a new stereo for the company car. I can see it now. Laser disc, graphic equalizer, 300 watts per channel. I'm getting more productive just thinking about it. David. Maddie, I'm half serious. What else is new? I mean it. You know, there is nothing wrong with enjoying your success, rewarding yourself for your victories. In fact, I think that's what sets us apart from the communist nations of the world. Not large bodies of water or major mountain ranges? Think about the men who made America great. The Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the Ewings. You think every time they had a gusher, they went out and bought new drilling equipment? Hell no. They went out and gambled, got drunk, ran around women, and what did it get them? Poverty. Damn straight. Greatest motivator in the free world. But you do what you want. You put the money in the bank, reinvest, let it earn interest, get comfortable, stop blazing trails for America and the free world. Or you consider my plan and you put jacuzzis in the executive bathroom. It's your country. You do what you want. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 2nd, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. I know not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today. We have... Uh, on the show, a great discussion coming up about capitalism, morality, and where we go from here. Our guest today is a special guest, at least for, for Bob and I. He's the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute and a leading advocate of Ayn Rand's ideas, Yaron Brook. He's also a, columo- a columnist with uh, Forbes.com, and his latest book, co-written with Mark, uh, Don Watkins, is Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas can end big government. Dr. Uh, Brooke, welcome to Just Right. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, before we get into talking about your book and the morality of capitalism, I'd like to let our listeners know that you're coming to Toronto on Monday, May 6th at uh, 7.30, doors open at 7.15, at the MedSci building, Medical Sciences building, 1 King's College Circle, room 3153. The event is free for anybody who wants to attend, and, of course, Dr. Yaron Brook will be there talking about the morality of capitalism. Now, before we get into that, Dr. Brook, I wonder if you can tell our listeners a bit about the Ayn Rand Institute based in California. What is their goal? 
Sure. The, the goal is to promote the ideas of the novelist philosopher Ayn Rand. I mean, many of your listeners are probably familiar with her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, where, where she really articulates a philosophy of life, a philosophy for living on Earth, and, and a philosophy, kind of a, a political philosophy as well. And, and our responsibility, our job at the Institute, is to, is to promote those ideas, to get her books read uh, in schools, uh, among the public, and just encourage the debates and the discussion around these ideas. So you travel around the world, actually, uh, giving lectures. And uh, how, what exactly does the Ayn Rand Institute do to promote that uh, uh, message of reason and, and rational thought? Well, we do a variety of things. We, we, we start with uh, trying to get uh, Ayn Rand's novels read in high schools. And uh, we have a number of programs targeted at high schools, both in the U.S. and in Canada, actually, where we try to encourage teachers to include Ayn Rand in the curriculum. Uh, and that's been, that's been quite successful over the years. We, we run, for example, the largest high school essay contest in the world today and with uh, close to 30,000 essays every year on Ayn Rand's novels. We then promote, help promote the ideas at, at various universities with uh, uh, college uh, clubs, uh, with uh, university professors who might teach the, the books. And the, the idea is to get these ideas taught in the mainstream schools, both at the college level and the high school level. And then beyond that, we, we act, if you will, as a, as a think tank. We, we publish, we write, we apply Ayn Rand's ideas to the current events in the world. Uh, and uh, we write about them, we lecture. You know, I travel around the world, as you said, uh, lecturing about these ideas, uh, trying to, trying to, you know, convey to people the, an, an alternative to, to the, the kind of political stalemate that they face really all over the world between so-called left and so-called right, um, and uh, present Ayn Rand's views, which are very different than either one of those. Now, you, you make a focus on um, high schools and universities, but... I know it's very difficult to, to tell an elementary school uh, student about capitalism or uh, philosophy, and yet, in our elementary schools is where the inculcation of altruist philosophy and self-sacrifice begins. Is there anything that the Ayn Rand Institute does to uh, preempt such an inculcation into such a dangerous philosophy? You know, we don't. It's it's more of a division of labor and, and what we can do as an institute. Uh, there are, I think, a number of people uh, in the U.S. working on, on curriculum for and, and actually starting schools uh, that offer an alternative curriculum for preschool all the way through high school, um, you know, where they, where they basically teach what should be taught in school and, and teach the methodology of thinking and uh, teach how to think and, and, and the right kind of uh, subject content. Uh, the Institute doesn't do it directly, but, you know, the, the, there's something that kind of saves us all from from the brain from the brainwashing that is done in, our, uh, in, in those early grades, and that is that, that as people become, kids become teenagers, they tend to rebel against uh, the, the common knowledge, you know, the, the, the accepted knowledge and the accepted authorities. They, they tend to want to think for themselves. They, they start searching for, for truth and they start searching for knowledge. And, I, and this is why we emphasize high school and college so much. It, that is the period in human life where we really are searching for ideas, where we become more idealistic, where we're looking for answers. 
And we think that that is an ideal time to introduce people to new ideas, to new concepts, and uh, and have an impact on them in spite of what their professors and their teachers and their schools uh, uh, inculcating them. Uh, Dr. Brooke, uh, Bob Metz here. Uh, you know, I, I, I too am involved in promoting ideas and things like that, but uh, it appears that the left is equally involved in promoting ideas and that the kids of today seem to be drifting more leftward than towards objective reality and, and what we might call the right. Um, or am I misreading that trend? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think the left is, is winning out as it has been for the last hundred years. It's been winning out systematically, and it really is winning out because it controls the educational institutions uh, in, in North America, really, around the do you world. Think, do you think that's the real reason, or are, are the left's ideas actually in some way attractive more so than the right ideas, in the sense? I mean, something for nothing no. always sounds attractive to somebody, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I, I think the left's ideas, I, I, I don't think they're that attractive. I think what is true is that the ideas presented by the right, by the conventional right, are very unattractive, so that, that most young people are presented with an alternative in the United States at least, which is the left's ideas, and then the right's ideas, which are not that different on fundamental issues, but, but are obnoxious on, on other issues. So, you know, I think, I think that this is the difference between, I think, the conventional right and Ayn Rand. I think Ayn Rand is, a, uh, uh, there's a set of ideas there that young people can't find attractive and interesting. What Ayn Rand does is she challenges the fundamental beliefs of both right and left. She's challenging the fundamental philosophy in which our culture uh, today is built, and that's true of left and right. And I think that that's what needs to be challenged. It's not true that, at least again, in the experience in the United States, that the right is right. The right is not right in the U.S. The right is wrong, and the right has failed on a massive scale. Whenever it gets into political office, it has failed dramatically. And that's because the right has fundamentally accepted the left's philosophical beliefs. And what Rand does is just challenges all of that. And I think for the first time, really, for the first time in 100 years, present young people with a real alternative, a real alternative to altruism, a real alternative to collectivism, a real alternative to statism. Now, Robert and I begin our show every week with the phrase, not right-wing, just right. And it's one thing to have the ideas, but, you know, I've seen these, I've been promoting Ayn Rand's ideas since I discovered them way back in the 1980s. And even when I see other people accept her ideas, they seem to be lost in terms of what they should do with regard to action. And who promotes the action? Where should that come from? Well, I think, first of all, you know, the, the, the primary action that people should engage in with regard to these ideas is, is with regard to their own life and themselves. It's to internalize these values, internalize these ideas, and help them shape your own life. And then in terms of, of political action or, or activism out there in the culture, you know, I think the Ayn Rand Institute helps, but... We need we need agents out there. One day there might be you know uh, political entities. We need activist entities, but people are going to have to initiate this kind of action to create a voice out there in the culture that promotes the ideas of liberty and the ideas of freedom. Uh, we need radio talk show hosts. We need people on television. We need people everywhere talking about these ideas, articulating them, pushing them, and activating them uh, from a, in a cultural perspective. 
Excellent. We're going to take our first break right now, and I uh, just wanted to warn you here. We're, we're about to begin a ride on what we call the Great Material Continuum, courtesy of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and a ride that ultimately arrives at its destination as we enter our final segment of today's show. It's a bit of a parable about the Ferengi version of the invisible hand, not as seen from the viewpoint of the greater good, but the individual good or bad, as it might be in this case. And it's really funny, we might talk a bit about that, how, you know, the, the Ferengi on there are the capitalist Yankee traders of the Star Trek universe, and why capitalists have always been portrayed in such a uh, sort of a negative economic view, at least, or social view. So our discussion with Dr. Yaron Brook continues in about two and a half minutes, our economic parable begins now. So, how much longer, Chief? I'm afraid it's going to take some time. How much time? About three weeks. We have to replace the Graviton Stabilizer. You have three days. But, sir, the Sector Quartermaster said it would take three weeks to get us a new Stabilizer. Well, that is your problem, Chief. I don't mean to sound negative, but I don't see how you're going to get the Defiant ready in three days. Neither do I. This quartermaster you've been dealing with, what's his name? Uh, Chief... Chief... Chief Willoughby. I mean his first name. I don't know. Is he married? Married? What does that have to do with getting us a graviton stabilizer? Everything. This Chief Willoughby must get hundreds of supply requisitions every day. He can't possibly fill them all, so he puts everyone on a waiting list. Mm, I know how he feels. I do the same thing. Well, the secret is getting him to put you at the top of that list. And the best way to do that is to form a relationship with him. Get to know the name of his wife, his children. Find out what he likes to eat. I don't have time to form a relationship with Willoughby. I do. I can get you that stabilizer, Chief. In three days? I'll leave everything to me. All right. to Edgar. Edgar who? Your new best friend, Chief Edgar Willoughby. He wanted me to thank you for that bottle of Gamzian wine you sent him. I didn't send him any wine. I took the liberty of sending it for you. By the way, his wife's name is Cynthia. They have a daughter, Melissa, age eight, and a son, Edgar Jr., age five. Did you get the stabilizer? Not quite. What do you mean, not quite? Uh, unfortunately, he's out of stabilizers and won't be getting a new shipment for another week. Huh. Well, that's it? I'm doomed. Uh, not necessarily. Eddie told me the USS Sentinel has an extra stabilizer. What makes you think they're going to give it to us? I didn't say they were going to give it to us. But they might be willing to trade for it. Trade? For what? Depends on what they need and what we have. Well, I suppose it doesn't hurt to try. But remember, be discreet. Uh, rule of Acquisition 168. Whisper your way to success. Hmm. Words to live by. Uh, Dr. Brooke, I don't know if you, uh, as a busy man, have time to watch Dar Star Trek Deep Space Nine when it was on, but what did you think of the, uh, uh, the portrait of a capitalist as being that squat, uh, troll-like looking creature uh, of avarice that uh, Star Trek portrayed him to be? Well, I think it's typical. I mean, this is, this is the way capitalists have been portrayed what, for at least 2,000 years? I mean, this is, if you go back to literature, you know, think about how Shakespeare portrays them or how 
Dante portrays the moneylenders, or, or how Dostoevsky portrays them. So, this is the this is the common thread. One of the common threads throughout, you know, uh, uh, Western literature has been the negative portrayal of bankers, but more generally of of uh, of capitalists. Uh, you know, they were always greedy. Uh, they were always uh, they were always nasty. They were always backstabbing. They'll do anything to get their way, and literally anything. Uh, and that's the way our culture still views them. Think of the movie Wall Street, uh, or, or think of the think of the number. I used to assign this uh, this uh, uh, assignment to my students when I when I, when I was a professor. And I used to say, "Go find one movie in which the hero is a successful businessman." Other people's and money. <laughs> other people's money, but that's a really rare movie. And even there, right? It's Danny DeVito. And he's being undercut by the fact that it's Danny DeVito and that he's ridiculous and he's pathetic. And yes, he's the good guy, but hey, but he's also not a mm-hmm. really heroic type. And and if you think about it, what's the Iron Man maybe, is the superhero movie? But that's about it. There's, there's, there are no movies in which a successful businessman is the hero. How many movies, though, are there in which the villain is a successful businessman? Very few. Almost all movies... Almost all movies, the successful businessman is the villain, is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And that is typical. And and what Ayn Rand identified, and what what I think is absolutely true, is that the reason for that is that that the way we view self-interest in the culture we live in, uh, we believe that self-interest is a vice. We believe it's, it's, it's a bad thing. We believe it's immoral, that it leads people to, to lie, steal, and cheat, and backstab, and, and do awful things. And it, who's more self-interested, explicitly so, without any ability to hide their self-interest, who's more, more self-interested than the businessman? And, and so we project our vision of, of self-interest of, uh, onto every businessman out there, and, and the result is that we don't trust them, and therefore we have to regulate them. Uh, we don't trust that they'll, that they'll behave themselves, so we, we view them as crooks that we have to look, you know, look uh, over their shoulder at everything that they do. And the whole regulatory state is really built around controlling greedy businessmen because we believe that their self-interest will lead them necessarily to misbehave. Uh, and of course, this is the problem with the whole conception of self-interest and the whole the whole problem with, with I think, how most people on the right uh, defend capitalism. They miss the fact that capitalism is about self-interest. And if you don't defend self-interest, you're not defending capitalism. It's interesting you say that because it's been my experience, Dr. Brooke, that many businessmen are not capitalists at all. They're socialists. And although they're in business, they vote for socialist parties. They vote for socialist policies. And can subsidies. Wa- they vote and for subsidies, subsidies, of course, to, to, to help lock out their competition sometimes. And it seems to me that finding a true capitalist in the uh, in the um, philosophical sense of the term not in the in the literal concrete businessman sense of the term is much rarer than finding business people who are acting on sort of capitalist principles but trying to reconcile it with their socialist uh, beliefs in fact didn't Ayn Rand sort of uh, pine away the years waiting for a great industrialist from the United States to come to her and say what a great idea you have here and she never met them <laughs> no, I think I think that's absolutely true. But let's let's separate for now the, somebody's philosophical stand from somebody's ability. Uh, you know what they do in life. 
there are many, many, many amazing businessmen out there. I mean, all the products that we enjoy today, mm-hmm. the, the high standard of living that we enjoy today in North America is all a product of the geniuses of businessmen. Yes, some of them are cronies. Some of them go begging for subsidies and so on. But that is not the majority of business. And, you know, if you take somebody like Steve Jobs, I mean, I can hugely admire Steve Jobs for his productive genius, for what he did. For, 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 the, for his self-interest, for, for what he did for Steve Jobs, for the life that he lived, uh, while at the same time acknowledging that politically he was terrible and, and uh, he probably held explicitly a bad philosophy. And I think for us, who are defenders of capitalism, we have to be careful to separate those two out. Warren Buffett is a great investor. He's an awful philosopher mm-hmm. and he's terrible in politics. But, w- but we lose something if we don't, if we're not willing to recognize the genius and the productivity of many, many great businessmen. I'm not saying all of them, because you're right, some of them are, are cronies, some of them are, you know, try to make their money off of, off of subsidies and, and begging the government for stuff. Uh, but it is true, that it is so rare to find anybody in business or in any of the field who gets these ideas, who understands what it's all about and, 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 uh, and is willing to support them and to advocate them. I think there are many more businessmen today who accept Ayn Rand's ideas of, of, uh, about morality and about philosophy and about capitalism than they were when she was alive, uh, unfortunately for her. Mm-hmm. She, never, she never met these great businessmen, but there are today more of those, and I think 10 years there'll be more, and 100 years from now we will be the dominant philosophy out there. I would agree. Now, your national best-selling book, Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's idea, Ideas Can End Big Government, mentions at the beginning the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, where they put Canada as sixth, and the United States, unbelievable to me, at tenth. Now, the governor of the Bank of Canada recently, a matter of fact, here in London at the Ivy School of Businesses, Business, made this following statement. When bankers become detached from end users, their only reward is money, which is generally insufficient to guide socially useful behavior. Beliefs in efficient, self-equilibrating markets fed a reliance on market incentives that entered the realm of faith. Now, at the risk of taking him out of context, it seems to me that the governor of the Bank of Canada, for the, <laughs> given the fine job that he's apparently doing, has the same notion as much of the people we're talking about in that the invisible hand that uh, takes care of society and capitalism is a matter of faith. Um, yeah, I think that's that? right. But, but it's also true that, the, you know, and this is the, the point we need to make over and over and over again. There is no invisible hand today. The visible hand of government is everywhere. Visible fist so to, of government. To, to, to pretend that there is a free market today where the Adam Smith's invisible hand is allowed to function is just ludicrous. I mean, here, here it is, the, 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 the chief bureaucrat in charge, the, the governor of the central bank. I mean, capitalism doesn't have a central bank, but the governor of the central bank is saying that the free market is not working. Well, he's the one who's preventing the existing of free market. And, and, of course, you see that. The Federal Reserve is no different. The, the, the Alan Greenspan said the same thing, as, as, as Bernanke said. There is no free market. Yes, did bankers misbehave during the 2000s in America? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But did they live in a free market where they were going to be penalized for their bad decisions, rewarded for their good ones, and it was all up to their judgment to make those decisions? Absolutely not. They were functioning in a heavily, heavily regulated, controlled, manipulated market where bureaucrats rule, 
where the Fe- where the Federal Reserve uh, uh, dictates all, where Freddie and Fannie dominated the mortgage business. And within that market, yeah, they, they misbehave, but you know what? They couldn't have behaved right because there's no set of circumstances, there's no set of behaviors that you would say is right in such a circumstance where you have bureaucrats with guns pointing them at you and telling you how you should behave. Now, Mark Carney, uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada, is also the chairman of the Financial Stability Board, a G20 organization whose goal is to promote international financial stability. Now, what do you think of that particular institution, the Financial Stability Board? It sounds like something right out of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, to tell you the truth, to me. Well, absolutely, and, and we know exactly what the what the Stability Board creates. It creates massive instability. You know, it, it, <laughs> that's it, why it, they name it exactly what it does. It's it's the it's where the systemic risk. Everybody talks about systemic risk, right? It's where the systemic risk really lies. It lies with the with the regulators and it lies with the central bankers. They're the ones who can create massive uh, global crises. No, no banker, no misbehavior of a marketplace can create a systemic disaster on the scale of, of, of 2008, on the scale of the Great Depression. Only the mistakes committed by central bankers who are, you know, because they control money, they control, they have, they have their fingers in every aspect of the economy. Only a central bank or government, which is which is again has its hands in every aspect of government. Only they can control, can can make a mistake that can cause the kind of financial crisis that we're experiencing. No market can cause a financial crisis on a global scale like the one we have today. Now, in your book, I was reading through it uh, recently, and I was actually quite shocked and appalled. Near the beginning of the book, you you list the history of how. The United States, since the time of Teddy Roosevelt, but more specifically FDR um, Roosevelt, um, has destroyed the founding principle on which your country was based, and that is of, uh, of a free market and capitalism. It seemed to me to be quite an, a daunting task to try to overturn this um, huge elephant of socialism and altruism that is destroying your country and ours. Um, it, it, it occurred through baby steps, as you say. Is the solution baby steps as well, or do we need a free market revolution to happen, like, overnight? Well, we're not going to get a free market revolution overnight, so we're going to have to take what we can get. Um, and uh, it's going to require time. It's going to require education, uh, you know, and, and whether we call those baby steps or whether ultimately will lead to some big revolution that'll overthrow everything, but the, the baby steps that are going to require are educational baby steps. We have to educate the American public in the ideas of capitalism, I mean, really in the ideas of the founding fathers. Uh, we like to think of ourselves at the Institute as, as trying to save the Enlightenment, you know, to try to save the ideas of reason and freedom. And really the founding principle of America is not so much free markets because they didn't understand economics or markets, the founding principle of America is individualism, mm-hmm. it's individual right, the idea of the sovereignty of the individual, the, the, the right of the individual to live his life as he chooses to pursue his rational values, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in the way that he chooses to, to pursue them. It, it is not, uh, and we have to teach, reteach America the, those principles, and it's hard because as we talked about earlier in the show, the left dominates our educational institutions, and we are going against everything that they believe in. And it's not like we have allies 
on the right because the right has been corrupted, uh, has been dramatically corrupted uh, as well uh, by these ideas. So we're going up against the entire intellectual world in in the United States, and it's not going to be easy. The, the advantage we have is that we have some fantastic novels that Ayn Rand wrote, which which people read because they want to read a good novel and they don't realize they're getting all this dose of amazing philosophy. So that's one advantage we have, but the more important advantage that we have is reality. You know, we're right. Uh, we have the truth on our side. And that is very, very powerful. The left is wrong and the right is wrong. The conventional right is wrong. And they fail. They fail over and over and over again. And to the extent that we can continuously point out their failures, show the causes, show what would happen if there was an alternative, uh, show where our ideas lead to. If we continuously promote these ideas, I think we have to win at the end. It seems to me there is an infinite number of ways to do something wrong and only one or two right ways to do it. And, and I think that's where the emphasis has to be put, not so much in pointing out all the mistakes because you could be doing that endlessly till the end of time. I think the real thing is we have to promote what is the correct thing to do and really stay on that track. At least that's my way of thinking. Uh, Dr. Brooke, we're already at the half hour mark, believe it or not. Going to take a quick break for station ID and a carry, and also to carry on our little uh, Deep Space Nine parable where again that issue of faith will come up, uh, a faith in the marketplace. Uh, and this is by someone who supports the marketplace who is a nog in this particular episode. And we'll return in a few minutes. Do you mind explaining this? Where's the captain's desk? Oh, you don't know? This is your authorization code, isn't it? Nog. What about him? Well, he must have traded the captain's desk for the graviton stabilizer. Excuse me? Don't worry, Colonel. I will get the desk back. Oh, you're damn right you will. The captain is returning from Bajor in two days. And when he does, I want his desk sitting right here, where it belongs. Don't worry, Chief. I didn't give away the captain's desk. I just loaned it to someone. Who? Al Lorenzo. Who's Al Lorenzo? The chief of operations on Dacos Prime. Well, what does he want with the captain's desk? He wants to take a picture of it. Why? He likes to collect hollow photos of himself sitting behind the desks of famous Starfleet captains. Uh, usually he just sneaks into their offices, but with the war on, it's been hard for him to get away. <laughs> well, that makes sense. He's got quite a collection. Captain DeSoto's desk, Captain Picard's... Okay, fine. So, once he has his picture, he's going to send us the graviton stabilizer. No, he's giving us an induction modulator. But we don't need an induction modulator. But the USS Musashi does. Ah, so the Musashi is going to send us the stabilizer. No, they're giving us a phaser emitter. But we don't need a phaser emitter. I know, but the USS Sentinel does. And they have the extra stabilizer. And they're willing to give it up for a phaser emitter? That's the rumor. Rumor? Well, you, you've made all these deals based on a rumor from a very reliable source. In a rumor? No, in the great material continuum. <sighs> Who are they? It's not a they. It's the force that binds the universe together. I must have missed that class in engineering school. 
Hound Ferenginar. We learn about the continuum while we still have our first set of ears. This is no time for Ferengi fairy tales. The continuum is real. And you see, there are millions upon millions of worlds in the universe. Each one filled with too much of one thing and not enough of another. And the great continuum flows through them all like a mighty river from have to want and back again. And if we navigate the continuum with skill and grace, our ship will be filled with everything our hearts desire. Now right now, I'd settle for a stabilizer on the captain's desk. The river will provide. Huh? It doesn't sink us first. You're tuned to Just Right on CHW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can find our archive shows at justrightmedia.org. And we're joined on the line with the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute, Dr. Yaron Brook. Dr. Brook, um, it was interesting in that particular clip, here we have the Star Trek uh, characters talking about this continuum of material wealth. It's sort of like the invisible hand envisioned by Adam Smith. Um, have we lost that sense of how good the market actually does take care of everybody? Everybody, in other words, in the sense that a rising tide lifts all ships. Or are we looking to destroy the actual ocean on which all of our ships are actually sailing? <laughs> well, both. Uh, yes, we, we've definitely lost. Uh, we've lost that perspective, but and we've lost that perspective because because I think philosophically we, we've rejected the basis on which it stands. Which is, you know, even Adam Smith recognized the fact that the invisible hand works because each individual is motivated by their own self interest. And Adam Smith didn't like that very much, but he accepted it. Uh, and as long as we don't like that very much, as long as we reject self interest as a moral ideal then uh, I, I think we will continuously reject the invisible hand because it relies on that on that self-interest. Uh, so, so that's where the battle is. The battle is ultimately about self-interest. And yes, uh, when we reject self-interest, we reject the invisible hand. When we reject the invisible hand, we are destroying the material wealth and the material well-being uh, that, that has been created. And, you know, in a sense, we're, we're, we're sinking a ship, we're destroying the ocean, however you want to, what metaphor you want to use. Fighting the hand that feeds you? Yeah, <laughs> all of that. We, we, we are going to sink, not just spiritually, but materially as well. And, and if people think that the 2008 crisis was bad, just wait. I mean, we, we are setting ourselves up for much worse. Now, the primary consideration, I think that Ayn Rand may have said, in any transaction is selfish interest, rational self-interest. So when Adam Smith talks about the invisible hand helping others, um, that shouldn't be our primary goal as capitalists, should it? It should be to help yourself as a primary. Yeah, absolutely. The primary is to help yourself. The standard of morality is your life, is your success, is your happiness, is your flourishing as a human being. The fact that other people benefit when you benefit is a fact. When we trade, when you know, when I trade with you, uh, I'm trying to make the best deal for me, but you won't trade unless you're making the best deal you can for yourself. So we're both trade, voluntary trade by its very essence is a win-win situation. When I buy an automobile for $30,000, I think the automobile is worth more than $30,000 to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't give up the $30,000. The auto dealer thinks that the automobile is worth less than $30,000 to him. He's made a profit. I've made a profit because my life is better off now for having the automobile rather than having the 30000 We're both better off. Now, do I really care that the auto dealer is better off? 
not really. I'm just trying to make the best deal I can for myself. I'm trying to make my life better. But it turns out he's better off too, which is wonderful. So capitalism and the pursuit of self-interest properly understood is actually win-win. You know, if everybody is rationally pursuing their own self-interest, everybody will be better off. And, you know, mistakes are made. People people make do stupid things and, and bad stuff happens. But generally, everybody is better off. Now, commodity trader Rick Santelli, a number of years ago during the, uh, the financial crisis, that was 2008 or 2009, I forget, made a, a call for a new Tea Party in the United States and called himself an Ayn Rander. Your thoughts on the Tea Party? I mean, I think the Tea Party w- w- was a, a positive movement, is a positive movement, motivated by the right thing. They're motivated by the growth of governments and governments' infringement on their liberty and, and wanting to government to get off their backs and, and to stop the massive intervention in their lives. The challenge with the Tea Party is beyond that, they don't really have an agenda. They, they don't have an intellectual agenda. They don't understand... I don't think that the, fully the founding principles of America and, and what America is really all about, what is individual liberty, you know, the, the fact that if you're going to shrink government, that means getting rid of Medicare and Social Security and things like that. It's not just about the few things that might have occurred since 2008. So they're not quite radical enough and they're not quite intellectual enough, but they're the best, most positive, healthy um, I'd say, political force in American culture today. Dr. Brooke, I was just reading um, uh, an April 27th editorial by Christia Freeland, who is uh, managing director and editor of uh, Consumer News at Thomson Reuters, and she reports on a Heartland Monitor poll sponsored by Allstate Insurance and the National Journal, Journal sorry, and uh, that reports that the chief preoccupation of middle-class Americans today is not the dream of getting ahead. It is the fear of falling behind. And she writes that for the land of opportunity, this is a seismic shift. America was created as a country where the middle class could prosper. Two-thirds of those who described themselves as middle class said their generation had less job and financial security than their parents. And they add that the disappointment and anger of the middle class is not just whining, it is based on real economics. So she concludes that the, for the Western industrialized countries, the really big story is not all the stuff we're reading in the news, but the slow, inexorable decline of the middle class. And then she says, there are still a few hours left before midnight. Is it possible for America to recover from this decline in, their, in, their, in the middle class in the, in the country with the kind of deficits it's going into? Yes, I, I think it's certainly possible. Whether it'll happen or not is a different question, but it's certainly possible. Well, is it probable? It, you know, <laughs> what's that? Is it is probable it, that yeah. it, you know? <laughs> I don't play the probabilities game. It's, it's too <laughs> difficult. But look, it it it, it is it, it it is possible. It, it it's going to require some real political courage. It's going to require some real political will. It's going to require that the American people wake up uh, and realize why they're in the bind that they're in. Uh, what is the cause of the problems that they're facing? Uh, but you could, you could, uh, you know, you could fix the economic, from a purely economic perspective, you can fix the the economic problems that the United States faces fairly quickly if you could get a political mandate to do so. I mean, it it it, it, it would not uh, it would not be that hard to cut uh, to cut. Uh, 
the American uh, budget dramatically, none, none of this nonsense, sequester nonsense, but real cuts, it would be not that difficult to privatize and to slowly phase out over time programs like Medicare and Social Security and to privatize American health care system. So practically is not a problem. It's the political will and it's the philosophical will and it's the will of the electorate to vote in people who are capable and are willing to do the dramatic actions that are needed to save the country. But the country is savable. Let's, you know, the, the entrepreneurial spirit is still alive and well. It just needs to be freed up. It needs to be allowed to, to, to thrive. I mean, even today, even in California, which is about the most oppressive state in, in the United States today in terms of taxes and regulations, Silicon Valley is booming. I mean, people are going to work. They're creating new products. They're building stuff. They're, they're, they're doing all this stuff in spite of everything. Imagine what would happen if you got government off their backs, if you actually freed up the economy, if you allowed people to produce and create and make stuff without being penalized for it, this country would explode, and, and, and there is that potential for, for economic explosion, for real big uh, economic movement. But, of course, where's the political will to make the changes that would make that possible? Unfortunately, I think the probability of that happening in the uh, in the next, uh, let's say, 10 years is very low. Well, now, the United States government has a history of punishing the electorate for voting for lower taxes. For example, the Proposition 13 in California in 1978 um, was met by the state's response of removing uh, somewhat essential services uh, just to punish the people when they could have actually cut some of the fat off of the thing. Now, the administration's handling of the, se uh, the sequester what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, for example, having planes delayed because of laying off uh, or, or, or furloughing uh, air traffic controllers, that kind of a thing. Is that the Proposition 13 rearing its head again, punish the taxpayer for daring to suggest we should cut? Um, yeah, no, there's no question that, that they want to make it painful. They, they want to make political points. They want to make it clear to the, to the people that, you know, that the other party is responsible for the pain that they're suffering. They also believe, you know, this Keynesian belief, and you hear it everywhere. I mean, this is un this is one of the things that the, the free market movement does so poorly is defend itself. But everywhere you hear is, well, of course, if you cut government spending, economic growth suffers, which is complete nonsense. But Keynesianism is so ingrained in, in everybody's thinking that they just take it for granted. And that needs to be challenged. But yes, they, they try to make it as painful as possible. And, and, and we need to stand up to them and, and um, you know, show the absurdity of what they're trying to do and show why this is complete and utter nonsense. And look, the sequester was not a good way to cut government spending. It was just the best way available. The, the best way to cut government spending is to find those things that government shouldn't be doing because it's not its job to do. It's not part of its mm -hmm. mandate to protect individual rights and eliminate those instead of this across the board cutting everything a little bit cut some things a lot uh, that's the way that's the appropriate way to cut spending uh, since they can't do that politically the sequester is better than nothing and oddly enough the sequester wasn't even a cut it was simply a reduction in the rate of increase a lot of yeah, people don't well, realize yes, that of course of course Go government spending over the next 10 years is going to increase by $2 trillion instead of by $3 trillion. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, the mainstream you know, media 
Dr. Brooke, the mainstream media seems to be one of um, the enemies to rational thought uh, in both countries here uh, because they, they buy the Keynesian line of stimulus and, and um, government spending. Uh, do you have the Ayn Rand Institute have a program to help get through the mainstream media's uh, propaganda? Well, I mean, what we try to do is we try to uh, we try to get our point of view across within whatever media is available. Sometimes we manage to get it into the mainstream media. Sometimes we have to use alternative media. But look, today people have so many alternatives, uh, media alternatives in terms of finding their news that I, I think the mainstream media is less and less powerful today. Mm -hmm. Look, I don't think the problem is the media. I think the problem is that that we on the on the right on the proper right, mm -hmm. don't do enough of a job, uh, you know, uh, marketing our ideas. We, we don't do enough to let people know that there's an alternative, that, that uh, Keynesianism is not the only way to look at the world. We, you know, we don't, we're not vocal enough in objecting to what is going on in the world today and, and providing an alternative. Uh, so people, all they encounter is Keynesianism, and, and you're right, most of the media doesn't challenge it, but that's our job. We need to step in and challenge it. And look, the mainstream media uh, was uh, was trained uh, in the universities, so mm -hmm. why would you be surprised? Um, well, you're right. That, uh, <laughs> you know, that is our job, uh, to actually get those that word out there. Coming down to the last quarter of the show now, and we're going to take one more great trip up the Great Material River and back down again, and then we'll wrap up with Dr. Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute in California. Bloodline? Sixteen cases sent to me by my wife. Now, where are they? How should I know? You authorized their removal. That is your authorization code, is it not? Nog, Chief, I want that blood wine back here by tomorrow. Understood? Rob, where's Nog? I don't know, Chief. Nog left the station a couple of hours ago in a runabout. Who gave him permission to use a runabout? You did. I never should have given him my authorization code. Did he say when he'd be back? Not to me. How could he do this to me? How could he leave me adrift, mid-river without a paddle? What river would that be? You know, the great material continuum. Oh, that river. They can be very treacherous. Tell me about it. desk. Yes, looks nice, doesn't it? I came in this morning and found Ensign Nog polishing it. It was looking a little dull. That'll be all. Yes, sir. Oh, about the stabilizer. Captain, I, I can explain. Don't bother. Ensign Nog tells me you were able to get a hold of one this morning. I was? I mean, I was. I don't know how you did it, Nog. I never lost faith in the great material continuum. Ah, like you say, the river will provide. Chief! The water's just got choppy again. I want you to have this. Consider it an apology. Well, you found the blood wine? Not exactly. Ensign Nog returned from his trip with 16 cases of 2309. Very good to hear. And he 
even better vintage than the one my wife sent me. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you approve. And remember, anytime you're shopping for wines or spirits, my cousin Gant is the man to see. We will keep that in mind. <sighs> Your cousin Gant? Just another sailor on the Great River. Ah. By the way, Gant mentioned he's got ten cases of sorry and brandy. It's the captain's favorite, you know. Level five. What does he want for the... Now, Dr. Uh, Dr. Brooke, besides yep. finance... Your uh, area of expertise, another area of expertise, is uh, foreign policy for the Ayn Rand Institute. So I wonder if we couldn't spend the next few minutes uh, of our show talking about foreign policy. And in particular, uh, I'm interested in um, the United Nations. Canada was rejected for a seat on the UN Security Council in 2010. I think it was the first time ever in 60-year history of the UN. And it's thought that this was due to Canada's support for Israel. Now, of course, you're Israeli born and bred. Um, what role does the UN have to play in the world? Or is it just a, a club for the savage nations of the world to, to beat the more civilizations, uh, civilized nations over the head with? Any role for it? Well, there's no, no question. It's, it's a club for the savage nations of the world. It was from the very beginning when, when an equal member to the United States and the Security Council was Stalin. You know, it was, was, the, was the Soviet Union that at the same time was killing 60 million of their own population. And it was sitting on the United Nations trying to moderate, bring peace to the world. I mean, what a, what a moral travesty. I mean, I think the United Nations is one of the, one of the moral tra greatest moral travesties it, it, the world has ever seen it, it, it's a it's an organization that pretends that you know that uh, all these countries are equal that uh, the most savage countries and barbaric countries in the Middle East or in Africa or in wherever they happen to be or the Soviet Union are equal to uh, the countries in the West that that still have respect for for the individual and individual rights it's countries that that pretend that countries in which uh, they they regularly uh, you know engage in things like legally engaged in in things like uh, stoning uh, women who accused of adultery or or female genital mutilation or, or just massacring tribes that they don't like uh, are equal in some way to to the civilizations of the West. Uh, I I have long thought that the United States should leave the United Nations. I think it's it's a it's a good thing that Canada wasn't allowed to be on the Security Council. Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be an opportunity for Canada to leave as well. The United Nations would fall apart without the financial support the United States gives them, and yet it is an organization dedicated to anti-American ideas. So, um, Actually, the minister responsible for dealing with the United Nations, I think is John Beard, uh, Bob, isn't it? He said in the House of Commons the other day that he's not even going to attempt to sit on the Security Council and that more or less, not using his words, the UN can go pound salt. <laughs> if it thinks that it can change our uh, foreign policy views on Israel to, to get a seat on that council, which is a great well, stand for our government. Well, good for him. I mean, uh, you know, my, my, my pain of Canadian foreign policy just went up. <laughs> now, another foreign policy issue of interest to uh, Canadians and myself is the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the issue, but um, President Obama is delaying the delivery of oil from Canada to the United States um, because of environmental concerns, supposedly. He wants that lobby vote. Uh, what's your opinion on that? What should Obama be doing? Well, I think the Canadians should just ship it somewhere else. I mean, you don't need mm -hmm. to ship it to the United States. There are plenty of ports that you have access to. Ignore us and just go make some money. 
Um, so, uh, you know, Obama's clearly not acting in the, in the interest of America. Look, you know, the whole issue wouldn't exist under capitalism and wouldn't exist in, in, a, in a true free market. I mean, why do we need, why would anybody need the president's approval one way or the other to do anything? Uh, it, it's none of the president's business whether I build a pipeline or not. As long as I can gain the rights, the the the, the rights to uh, to go through other people's land in order to get there. So exactly. unfortunately, we live in this mixed economy where the government owns most of the land, and that that's the cause of our problems. Uh, should a private oil company be dealing with nations like Saudi Arabia, Iran, or some of the more uh, unfriendly nations of the world, the dictatorships who? Uh, have no respect for individual rights. Should a private oil company be dealing with such people in such countries? Well, I, I think that the standard should be: uh, is is the country you know so hostile that it is it is an enemy to you know to, to the country where you are based? And uh, I don't think oil companies should be dealing with Iran. Um, but you know whether you deal with Saudi Arabia or some of these other countries, yes, they're hostile to individual rights, they're horrible countries, but you not dealing with them is not going to solve that problem, and it's not going to it's not going to resolve that in any way. Um, you know, unless you could get all the oil companies in the, in the world to do it, and it just wouldn't happen. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is a shame that these countries uh, exist, and you know what what the real travesty is is that in the 1950s when these countries basically stole the oil from these oil companies, yes. uh, the West sat by and let it happen. That, that they view that nationalization is considered a legitimate function of government. I think that's where America and Canada and other countries failed from a foreign policy perspective, was when uh, Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal, when the Saudis and the Iranians and others nationalized their oil supplies, that at that point, American foreign policy didn't stand up and say, wait a minute, this is not your oil. This is the oil of the oil companies, and you have, you know, people have deals with them. You can't just renege on those deals. Um, but, you know, that's that That was a long time ago, and uh, it, we, we've got so many challenges here domestically that to, to worry too much about uh, all property rights overseas right now is just, it, it's too difficult an issue. People don't even want to listen to it. True enough, and there are other issues too, like the uh, nuclear developments in Iran and North Korea. Um, what would your stand, I know what your stand would be actually, but I'm, for, for the devil's advocate, what would your stand be on uh, dealing with Iran and North Korea? Well, I mean, I, I don't think North Korea is a real threat. I think North Korea is, is a, is a it, you know, they don't want to die, and they know they're going to die if they if they launch an attack. I think the best thing with North Korea is to have no contact with them, absolutely nothing. Don't negotiate with them. Don't say, We still feed them. We still send them mm -hmm. food. Stop everything. Cut them off completely. If the, if the South Koreans want our help, then tell the South Koreans they must stop. They will shut down the border, no trade, no communication. Nothing. Treat them like the the, the outcasts that they should well, be. A, a parallel to that would be Israel's feeding and powering <laughs> Gaza, which they do. It's they a worse parallel. Yeah. It's a worse because because the Gazans are actively daily trying to kill Israelis. And so yet Israel you got these, you, and and we feed them. Yes, you know Israel feeds them and, and gives them electricity and gives them water and gives them power. Everything. But isn't you know, that it's. 
Sorry. This is the ultimate of self-sacrificial yes. altruism. That's exactly, no about that's exactly what I was about to say, no that it feeds right into the A Abrahamic code <laughs> of self-sacrifice. Israel is killing itself by feeding it its enemies. Israel is committing suicide. I've been saying that for years, and, and uh, Israel will, will succeed in committing suicide. And, and you can see what's happening in the Arab world. You can see this whole Arab spring or Arab winter that we're experiencing all over the Middle East to some extent is a consequence of Israel and America's weakness. It's, it's the, it, you know, it's, it's looking at, at this pathetic, morally neutered uh, entity called Israel and the West more generally. Israel ultimately is the representative of the West and the Middle East and the Arab world saying, we want nothing to do with that. We, we want self-confidence and self-esteem and power and strength and we believe we can get that through Islam. We believe we can get that by going back to the days of the Caliphate and none of this weakness, pathetic Westerners. And that's what we exhibit. Israel is pathetic. It's mm -hmm. pathetic. To feed your enemy while they're trying to kill you is one of the most pathetic acts any government in history has ever committed. I can see why you're and, and these are the Jews who should have <laughs> learned something from World War II. Yes, right? you'd think. These are the Jews who should have learned from the Holocaust, and they've learned nothing. Now, Dr. Yoram Brook, um, co-author of uh, Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government, Executive Director of the Ayn Rand Institute in California. Dr. Brook is going to appear in Toronto at the University of Toronto Medical Sciences Building, 1 King's College Circle, Room 3153, Monday, May 6th at 7.30. Doors open at 7.15. It's a free event, co-sponsored by the Freedom Party of Ontario and the um, Toronto Objectivist um, Committee, is it? Yeah, TOC. Um, Dr. Brook, uh, Bob and I will be at that event. We look very much Excellent. forward to, uh, yeah, to seeing to you there. And uh, I'll be Absolutely. there with my cameras. And uh, it's going to be an interesting day. We look forward to it. Thank you very much for joining us today on Just Right. And thank, thank you. you. And I look forward to seeing you on, uh, on Monday. And join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright uh, I like the news. The news is full of crazies who want me to be scared all the time so they can just bite it. And uh, I, I don't have any time for the news. No, the news... Do Skittles cause VD? Find out at six. <laughs> the news is always trying to scare you. And, uh, and, and the, the ads try to scare you. Dull. I just... It makes me so mad when do you, but we've all seen the ad for burial insurance, right? Burial insurance with the two old women sitting at the kitchen table, two in the morning, uh, talking about their old dead friend who's like the, obviously the worst old dead person ever because she didn't get burial insurance. And now her grandkids are going to have to eat cat food so that they can find the money to bury her. No! They will bury you! Oh my god, I want to find the old people and say, don't buy... what? They will... do you know why? Society hates a rotting corpse, you big freak.